With traffic, errands, and parking, cars can be a chore. But a great car can be an adventure, a getaway, and a prized possession. Whatever your budget or family require, there's a car out there you'll love. We're here to help you find it. I'm Todd. I'm Paul. And this is the Everyday Driver Car Debate. It surprised both of us to discover that this is podcast 525. <laughs> Surprise! We had, exactly. We had told ourselves we were going to start doing all questions podcasts on the 25 intervals. So here we are, all questions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys have so many questions. As yep. a matter of fact, on the last podcast, we didn't get to all of them. So it's we true. are taking this. Thank you guys for all your social media questions. But before we jump in... Thank you guys for watching Race School. Todd and I went to the SCCA San Francisco region race school at Thunderhill driving Spec Racer Ford, Gen Mm -hmm. 3 Spec Mm -hmm. Racer Ford. So we had a lot of fun doing that. And damn it, Patton says, other than the ones you caught on film, how many incidents did you guys see on track during the three days we spent at race school? Given the levels of experience that we mentioned, which varied wildly, the the, the money so. and the yes. cars didn't correlate to experience and good driving. Not at all. Not as at all. you find yeah, yeah, at yeah. every track. Totally. But this was consistent with race school. We thought there would be, you know, hey, people have been out there, mm-hmm. you know, didn't follow the racing line. Other people were doing great. There were people in the grass almost every single session. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, how did you end up over there kind of in the grass, like way in the grass? Not like, oh, you oh, you mowed the lawn a little bit. The joke you make, you mowed the lawn a little bit, you get back. I mean, the, no, I mean, like, how did you wind up over there kind of in the grass the whole first day? It was every single session somebody was out there. And we had one person in an oddball car, which was not the same as the spec racers. And they were trying to learn stick. And the car was problematic. They had problems every session. I felt bad for them. Yeah. Well, I, I think the coolest story was she had broken up with her boyfriend. Oh, yes. And was just doing all the things she wouldn't normally do and testing her limits. Mm-hmm. It was awesome. Yeah. And she thought, all right, I don't know very much about cars. I know nothing about racing. I'm going to racing school. Mm-hmm. Because why not? And it was just life experience. And she yeah. was moving on to a whole bunch of other things. I didn't get a chance to talk totally, to her. Yeah, but she was doing I'd heard stuff, her yeah. story through other people and just, what's she doing here? Well, get this. Yeah, She sure. ended a relationship. She's moving on. Mm-hmm. And she's just doing things for her to get good at all these cool. other things. It was very cool. She really did a great inspiring. job. We had And we had people in there. Like there was one guy in the, in the course that has been a flag person, one of the flag stands, forever. And he had this old fire suit that he was wearing, you yeah. know, like racing fire suit yeah. that clearly was 20 years old and he'd, he'd used it all the time as a flag guy, but he'd never driven the race cars. Yeah. And he was in our group. Couldn't believe it. It was very, very fun. But actually, one of the things that I remember is at the end of the weekend, Bruce, who we rented the cars from at mm-hmm. XL Race Tech, mm-hmm. he came over and thanked us. And I was like, Which what? I can't believe. Bruce what, what, Why? And, and the reason he thanked us is because, well, every time I support one of these, I take home at least two wrecked cars. <laughs> That's because right. he was used to people, especially at the end of the front straight. You're coming into the front straight about 110 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. And you can barely lift and make the first corner. Yeah. But that's yeah. also if you, it, that's also where a lot of passing gets done. Indeed. Okay? So Indeed, the problem yes. is the combination of amateurs, the highest speed of the track, very little braking, and the attempt to pass. Mm-hmm. Apparently – Almost every time they run this school, they pick a couple people off the tire wall, having wrecked into each other and slid off the end of turn one. Yikes. And so we were getting thanked for being, (laughs) A, aggressive, and B, not winding up with a ball of car somewhere, (laughs) which I I was like, well, I didn't know that was a common thing, but apparently – so that was Bruce and his son Perry at Axel Racetech, axelracetech.com. They have – 
race cars for rent. You can show up and drive. And that's what he did. He provided us the two mm-hmm. race cars. And then we joined the San Francisco region SCCA, as we said. So yeah, right. it was fantastic. I'll go you they one made further. It easy. Not only did they make it easy for that event, but also, and if you really get the bug in a big way, and we drove this just enough to go, hmm, I could sink a lot of money into this and probably oh, shouldn't. Well, yeah. but, but here's what's interesting is there are guys that run this series every year. Mm-hmm. Including a couple of our instructors, who they own their car, right, right. But Bruce stores it. Bruce preps it. Bruce brings it. They show up in their personal truck at the at the track yep. with their RV, or they get a hotel. Or they just show up, and their car is there, fueled, prepped, ready, because Bruce stores them and preps them and gets them ready. Yeah, Bruce and Perry were awesome for trackside support, pit support, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then the arrive and drive thing, which is like. You do for Ferrari when you buy one of their hot race cars and they yeah. they store it for you and they do everything with a crew. <laughs> it's like that at the lowest level. It is. But the feeling is the same. That's a very good point. Which That's is a very good point. Great. I was surprised at the range of folks out there because we were running – again, we were running the dedicated race cars. Right, but right. you could come out there and run any of the normal SCC streetcar classes. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. were – People from, you know, that is a dedicated race car with a roll cage and that's all it's ever yeah. been to people that it was like, I'm pretty sure you're driving that car home. Yeah, right, right. From Miatas to 3 Series BMWs. Totally, yeah, yeah. Everything. Well, guys, thanks to our TV sponsors for making that all happen. As you've heard, Haggerty, Griot's Garage, Covercraft, and Auto Tempest, we are really proud to be a part of all of their companies and their families. So really appreciate it. And along those lines, we still have four more, no, sorry, three more new episodes of TV coming to Motor Trend. Yeah, we do. We have uh, one called Workhorse that is about four sedans, the standard sedans, the Camry, the Accord. It's also the Snot and the Mazda 6. That was a surprising piece, honestly, genuinely Mm -hmm. surprising to the two of us that we shot in downtown Denver. We also have our stepbrother's piece, which is very fun. I'm excited for that. The Toyota 86 and its vaguely related brother oh come the on Supra. they have the same badge they're related that, that's how they're related that, they are right there makes it they technically better. have the same name on the adoption papers so yeah. there's that and then we also have c7 versus c8 corvette these are coming up the next three saturdays in a row we're very excited they are being posted to amazon now we are kind of at amazon's mercy for how fast they review them and push them out but that process is happening as well yep keep in mind that is 7 30 a.m eastern time on the motor trend cable channel on Saturdays. I know that's early 4.30 in Pacific, but set your DVRs. Appreciate all you guys watching. Summer's here, and with that comes sunshine and blistering hot car interiors. I know that leather seat seemed like a great idea at the time until you scalded your legs. All you need is a custom sunscreen from Covercraft. These foldable sunscreens fit perfectly in the windshield of your car, and they keep your car a lot cooler while you're off enjoying the sunshine or whatever you're doing. I have used these for years, and I'm telling you, I swear by them. These custom sunscreens from Covercraft are available in a whole range of colors, and they're a simple, affordable way for you to keep your car cooler all summer long and protected from damaging UV rays all year long. We swear by our custom sunscreens from Covercraft. It's one of our favorite car accessories. And remember, you can get 10% off your car sunscreen by using the code EVERYDAY right now at Covercraft.com, or you can follow the link from our sponsors page. We've got all questions we're jumping into here. And there was one from Duncan Martin who asks about the concept of bangernomics. He says, do you have bangernomics in the USA? So I'm guessing he's in the UK. I'm guessing he's in Britain. He says, if so, what are the attributes to choose? It's my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong, but bangernomics is any car that's super cheap that is still better than walking. 
that you do nothing to. You don't put any main, you just put fuel in it and you drive it until it dies. Phaetons and Maseratis. And exactly right. And you leave it by the side of the road and you go by the next super duper cheap. You don't do anything to it. Yeah, Duncan, we kind of have that, but not to the degree that UK does by That's any funny. stretch. That's I mean, funny. even $500 cars here still probably run a lot longer than you think. I hate to say it. Well, and I've heard of people that do this every winter. They they, yes, they just yes. they buy a winter beater off of Craigslist for stupid cheap, and they just drive it kind of like we've done these old sedans, but they but even worse, <laughs> they just drive it through the winter and they do nothing to it but hope it survives. And in the end of the winter, they either cube it or sell it for even less than the few hundred they put into it, Seriously? and then they move on. And next winter they buy another one. I've heard of people that do that every winter. I I like heat too much. I like cars that actually the heaters. The with, heater, exactly. I like, you like cars heated seats. Too I do much now, now. Yes. Well, when the car is parked outside and it's early morning, yeah. I like those heated seats. Uh, but uh, but also just the fact in the winter I need the car to start the first time. Yeah, yeah and start to heat up rapidly. And the Phaeton was phenomenal at both of those realities. <laughs> it has other questionable realities, but uh, yeah. Well, he says uh, you know. Big, large-engine gas cars are staples in the UK because big fuel bills and potentially ruinous repair bills make them super cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ruinous repair bills, telling you, it's coming. It's looming. <laughs> but I still don't feel like I'm going to experience it. Yeah, you're it's still going to be handed down. Kick it down the road. Yep. We even had a suggestion to give the cars away. That is, if nobody ends up wanting them. Mm-hmm. We hope people do. I, I hope people kind of do, actually. Yeah, because yeah. I want people to experience... The driving dynamics, the rest not of the, the electrics, not the electrics, <laughs> yeah. but the dynamics themselves, especially the Maserati. It's so surprising. And I mm-hmm. think I can mm-hmm. sell you on Maserati once you've driven the QP5. I think I, I have a shot. <laughs> they sold you on it for sure. They did. Well, I'm thinking if we can't get rid of them and nobody wants them, this suggestion was to call the fire department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And give them to the fire department so they can use them for practice on the jaws of life and extracting people and cars on fire, which means they would sadly meet their end at yes. the hands of the fire department. But on the other hand, the tax write-off, the, and, then and maybe sh- we could go film it. We'd show up on the day they're doing yeah. that. That'd be perfect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You've heard us talk about drive homework because it's vital to drive a lot of things when trying to find your next car. Knowing your options is important. This applies to online shopping, too. You don't want to search just one website unless that site is searching all of the other ones for you. That's why we love Auto Tempest. I know you've heard us talk about it before, and we hope you've already seen how far you can shop with just one search. Auto Tempest pulls from all the top used car sites at once, so you know you won't miss a deal on that perfect car. Autotempest.com. All the cars. One search. I've got a question here. Of course, I'll jump into tires. Drew's talking about tires on Facebook and saying he adored his Blizzaks on his car, but they, they only are lasted him. Awesome. They are awesome. They only lasted about 10,000 miles. And he said it's because they've had some mild winters. And he said, okay, I, I want, and I'm glad for you, Drew, you want summer performance tires in the summer and full on winter tires in the winter. Are you doing something wrong? Should you buy something else? This is your question. Honestly, man, I've had things other than Blizzaks on my cars and the Blizzaks are better. I've had uh, look. I've, I've had Michelin tires. You had success with Michelin tires, winter tires. Yeah, I had some Michelin yeah. tires that were solid. The X Ice uh, Three, I think, were, were they were solid. Please don't get me wrong. It's not like they were a bad tire. Oh, I had yeah, yeah, yeah. Triangle tires from China. A, a triangle winter tire. <laughs> Still maintain. You just got to get speed, and then things exactly. smooth out. No, all that 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 bouncing you hear. That's seriously get fast enough. It'll be fine. But. Um, I had those on my Sabru when I first bought them. I did my first winter on triangle tires. And you know what? They were fine. Winter tires, 
in general, if you do get snow, they are better than anything else. But I will say this to you. I don't think you need to buy the performance Blizzax. You can buy Blizzax in kind of a more performance version or just kind of the general Blizzax winter tire. Yeah. I buy the general ones, and they tend to have a little bit better life. I've gotten two to three seasons out of them, which is not terrible. Okay, that's not bad. That's yeah, not bad. so three three solid seasons. Actually, the the Cayenne actually did three seasons on its uh, on its Blizzax, and you know what? That car goes through tires because of the weight and the braking and the hills that we have here goes through tires. So I think you're doing just fine. I w- but I would say you don't need to get the performance version of the Blizzax, which means they might last you a little bit longer. But no matter what you're shopping, shop a full winter tire if you get snow. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, there's a couple of filmmaking questions on here. I don't know if you saw these. Uh-oh. Zachary Levine says, what are your thoughts on Speed 1 and Speed 2, the movies? Well, were you with me when I saw Speed 1? I don't know. I th- you, you were. It was you and me and Mark and Matt. And it, when we were done, we I thought were that was so, Fast and Furious. That was Fast, fast and Furious, Oh, you're talking Speed. speed. I'm th- I am thinking Fast and Furious. You're right. Speed That's, was 94? 91? It was early, yeah. Wow. It was Fast and Furious that we we were so annoyed were by Fast and Furious. We went and got fast cars that our friends had, and we promptly actually that's what it was. You had your nine twenty eight. That's yeah, I did. And I borrowed Matt's Z three. Oh my! Gosh. And we proceeded to drive them too fast up a mountain road in an effort. You and I were trying to cleanse our palate. Is what we were trying to <laughs> after, do. This was after the very first very first Fast, fast and, and Furious, and Furious movie. movie. Yeah, we were trying desperately to cleanse our palate. Little did we know that was the first of. 10 of those movies that they would become one of the most successful franchises in history. Think about that. Think about if somebody had told you that, if we watched that first film, we would have been like, I'm sorry, but no speed (laughs) one and two speed two is the great cash in and is terrible. But Keanu wasn't in it. I know. He uh, avoided it on purpose. No, he avoided it on purpose because he read the script and went, I don't think so. Well, yeah, but he should have been and just swallowed it because he could have been in Speed Three and therefore been in three, no, four trilogies. True. Of that, you know, are just classics: John Wick, The Matrix, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and then the Speed trilogy. He could have been in all four of those trilogies. That are all of those huge. trilogies classics? Really? They're kind of classics. I mean, The Matrix, I'll give you, but I uh, anyway. Okay, yes, but John Wick is crazy popular. I think Speed One. I actually watched it recently with my son because I realized Did you really? he's old enough that he could handle it. Yeah. Because if you think about you know what was the you know, spooky at the time, it's like that's no big deal now. He actually really enjoyed it. And it, really? you know what? It it holds up okay. Some okay. movies from the late 80s, early 90s, I'll give you one. Crocodile Dundee. Yeah, that doesn't hold up. That does not hold up well. <laughs> I watched that recently and it was it was laughably but bad. But it's so quotable. And it, it's it was so very funny. quotable because that's a knife. But it was very quotable. But the problem is that comedies often don't hold up. You know, another one that I actually worked on that has not held up well is Austin Powers. Oh, yeah. If you think about it, those movies... Also very quotable. Exactly. Quotes like, oh, behave. Yeah. And all those other kind of quotes, some of which are really inappropriate. And so I'll stop there. But those quotes from Austin Powers were everywhere when those movies came out. Yeah. And you watch them now without that kind of zeitgeist awareness of how culturally important they were. You watch them now and it's kind of like, this is... There's some okay, cringe. This is okay. Yeah. It's, it's all right. So comedies have trouble aging. The The Speed movie, actually, the first one actually ages okay. It's not great, but mm. it ages pretty solid. Mm. Interesting. Well, there's also a, an Instagram comment from Cars and Comments who asks if we were going to be characters in the next Pixar Cars movie, mm. 
what cars would we want to be depicted as and why? And I thought Porsche, you might think Porsche something, but mm-hmm. that would just make me come across as a spoiled, rich, you know what? Mm, okay. And I don't want that, even though in the first cars, you know, the Porsche was not yeah. a spoiled brat, yeah. which was good. She was, was good. actually the girl that grounded him, which is quite ironical. Yes, she was, yes. which was good and mm-hmm. well yeah, chosen. For sure, yeah. But, you know, Maserati, why? You know, I liked I you liked all the, the montage from the Italian garage, <laughs> and I thought, oh, I want to be part of that fun because they were vindicated at the end. You know, that's and funny. I want to be the Maserati. You know, classy, but I can still get my hands dirty, and that's I can still race, funny. and maybe I break, and you know, that's I don't know. that's quite funny. I do like it. Uh, what here's the thing: I would love to say that I would be. A Lotus, some sort of some sort of Lotus car. I'd love to think that, but the truth is, given my size and my voice, I would wind up as something like a GT350. Okay, okay, some yeah. big American, you know, big sure. voice Mustang Camaro thing. That's what I'd wind up as. I know I would. <laughs> However, the the guys that did um, Car Talk were voices in that movie. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that was great. Along they were with Paul Newman, exactly. But they were the Rusties guys in that that's movie. Right. They were his original sponsors, and that's Tom something and I would love to do. I would love to do voice work in general. But for something like a Pixar film, I mean, that feels like the pinnacle, doesn't it? That sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Gabriel asked a question on Facebook. I'm not going to go too far into this because it was recent and we haven't shown the video yet. But I am going to give one spoiler alert for this. Is there a car with a manual transmission so bad? You would rather have the automatic. Mm. We recently drove mm. a base Volkswagen Jetta in manual. Okay. okay. And one of the things we talk about in that TV episode is the thing. We're, we're all – look, we're all listening to this podcast. We're all car people. I get it. We all I'm, – I'm, I know, broad brush – theoretically believe and the internet of car enthusiasts certainly believes that a manual is always better. It's interesting to be in the Volkswagen Jetta and that not be true. <laughs> to be driving a manual transmission Telling car you. and to wish for the automatic. I have addressed this. I've talked about it just because it has a manual and I think it's a cliche for journalists to say, well, it's a good car, but you know, it, it should have a manual to make it better. How? Better how? Well, but, but say define better. But it's more look, interaction. Yes, more interaction legs is, are the, moving. is the key thing. But it's almost – honestly, it's like dancing with a partner who doesn't get it if the, if the manual transmission is bad. Yeah. And that, that gets frustrating quickly. If it doesn't bring the car to life in your hands and you're suddenly having more fun, it wasn't better. <laughs> All right. Turning to racing briefly, question from Jared Rose 1 who watched the Formula 1 race and at this point – well – the um, th- there's been many Formula One races, and you could claim this is not necessarily a spoiler of any particular race, mm-hmm. but it was the first Silverstone race of 2020. Yeah, yeah, is what he's referring to. And again, not a spoiler alert, but more the general question is: the last three minutes of that race were as interesting, but the rest was predictable and boring as it has been for years and years. Okay. So the question is: how can you still have genuine interest and continue watching the race? Mm. I I agree, it can get boring. And racing, car racing in any form, pretty much exists for the purpose of entertainment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We can argue this, we can debate this, but when it comes down to it, racing is for entertainment purposes. Yeah, for sure. There's very, very few racing series that do feed technology that trickles down to actual cars you and I can buy. Mm -hmm. Formula One is up there. I think Formula E will continue to push that direction. But even the people at IndyCar admit that, 
they are they exist for the sole purpose of entertainment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is the whole reason the cars race. So to give the fans a show, yeah, you gotta gotta race hard. And in Formula One, very much it is about who has the most money. Yeah, but the reason I'm captivated bad. by this is because watching I get to watch the equation of money equating to speed and mm, hearing okay. about all the tech that goes into this absolutely astounds me from aerodynamics to the engineering teams mm, to the build mm. of the car. And then of course the the teams and their synchronicity at, at pit yeah, stops, yeah, all yeah, that yeah, stuff. Yeah. It fascinates me. And I know there's top teams and because they have all the money, well, that means they should win. And I, I do wish they were more equal rules. And I think that is coming from FIA. I mm-hmm. think that's coming in formula one to equal things out. So it doesn't matter how much money you throw at a problem. Sure. Sure. This underdog team could still beat you because of the reason, whatever yeah, that yeah, the rule caps is or whatever they are. Yeah. Yeah. Many rules have been tried over the years, which is the problem. You remember the groove tire era. That mm-hmm. was the whole point is to equalize everybody out. Well, <laughs> that was Michael Schumacher's winningest era. <laughs> Most dominant era. He, he figured it out. Yes. Oh, look, he won again. Yes. <laughs> Just because Ferrari threw money at the problem. So yes, I, I do understand it can be boring to think, well, so-and-so run, won the race again, or this person finished second again. Here's I get it, yeah. but I'm still fascinated by it because of, wow, money equates to that technology. I, I want to just watch it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want an exciting race. Yeah, It's usually yeah. at the very start, the first lap. And the last two. Sure. Of course I it is. Get yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still fascinated just by learning all the stuff and hearing the commentators and that kind of thing. Here's something I realized about myself a couple of decades ago, and I've always kind of laughed about it. You'll probably laugh at me now. It's one of the many ways where I am strange. But when it comes to sports, I find it really difficult to watch sports. I don't like to sit live and watch sports. I don't really like to watch televised sports. I am including Formula One. I am including racing. I can take it for a little time period, but all it starts to do over time is to frustrate me that I'm not doing the thing I'm watching. Sure, sure. I have a pretty low tolerance. Conversely, I love documentaries and movies about those big sports. I... Behind the scenes. I love watching dramatic or documentary. I love watching movies about football. Huh. I really don't want to sit and watch football. I I just don't care. Interesting. Is because the storyteller in you, I guess? It's the storyteller part. And it's also the fact that when they do those docs or those – or you know they make up a narrative, whatever. Yeah. You have all of the stuff that's not happening during the game or the session that is added – to give it drama. And all of that stuff existed in real life, but when you sat down and watched it on TV, you didn't know a lot of that stuff. I mean, like there's that one that's on right now was an ESPN thing and now it's on Netflix, The Last Dance about Michael Jordan and the and the Bulls. That's really good for the same reason. But right. the Senna documentary is riveting. It's yeah, fantastic. True, true. And I like when they do like uh, also on Netflix, I didn't mean this to be a promotion, but the driven, the F one driven yeah. uh, episode yeah. about the last two F one seasons. I find that excellent. so much more interesting than the seasons themselves because now you're hearing about all of the stuff that maybe the commentators covered it, but maybe they didn't. Oh, cover I guarantee it. you, they usually don't because but, they don't know the behind the scenes and the the politics and the anguish and the and all of that despair. stuff comes out because you shot it in documentary form and you cut it after the fact. I love that stuff uh, much more than I do watching what's supposed to be the actual event I'm supposed to pay attention to. Sure, I I can see that. I mean, Lama. There was a a Lama film, two mm-hmm. two parts. I forget the name of it off, yeah. off the top of my head, but that was fascinating 
And it was the behind the scenes and all the drama of drivers and the, the Audi one exhaust the Audi. Yeah, yeah, it was great. I forget what it was called too, but it was really. Excellent. And we're just yeah. exhausted, and you hear about all this stuff, and you're going, "I had no idea yeah. all this yeah, yeah, stuff yeah. was happening just to field a car that's in the th- front third of the pack." Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the money and the time and the all that stuff just to not to mention being first. That's well, a look, different level. I'll go another layer. I mean, I know that chance was there, but I fully suspect that watching you and I do our race school was pretty boring. Sure, maybe, yeah. And I believe we've made an interesting piece of television out of it because you're in the seat with you and I and we're doing all the the stuff. We're telling you all the stuff around it mm-hmm. so that it gives it perspective. I just think that's fascinating. It's a little bit of a combination of both those things. Mm-hmm. It's the actual race, but we're kind of doing it. it we're telling you about it mm-hmm. as we're doing it kind of thing. Yeah, which for is, sure, for sure. I, I think that's why I had so much fun and I think that's why it comes off so well. Avi asked on Facebook that he's he's trying to get us to clarify. We mentioned recently on the Lexus piece, but we've mentioned in the individual pieces as well, when we drove both the Toyota RAV4 hybrid and the Highlander hybrid, both of which we've driven in non-hybrid forms as well, that we preferred the hybrid versions. Now, his question is, wait a minute, those have CVTs and they're hybrid. Why on earth did we actually prefer them? And I'll tell you why, Avi. It's two main things. One, it is the fact that in that market segment, let's be honest, it is the family hauling SUV, CUV. Performance is not why you buy those, candidly. It's not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We'd like for you to kind of like being in it, but performance is not why you buy it. So the fact that you can get more gas mileage is a fantastic bonus. But the thing I liked about both of those is it was the zero to 20. Mm. It was the leaving the light. Mm. Because otherwise, they have engines that don't have power, really, to leave the light. But in hybrid form, they've got electric torque. And so as soon as the light goes green, you and the entire brood can just whistle your way forward as fast as anybody can leave the light in your huge family SUV. The hybrid added that benefit that the non-hybrid versions didn't. And then the bonus was more gas mileage. I think in that area, because what are you doing? You You just need to thread your way through your life in those cars. You're not back road charging. You're not doing anything like that. And I think for me personally, that was the reason the hybrids won. Interesting. Well, let's see here. Oh, For Honor asks, why aren't there more hybrid minivans? Oh, that's a good building question. Yeah. Seems like they could benefit from the electric torque and family vacation miles per gallon. Well, as a matter of fact, the Chrysler Pacifica exists. The Chrysler Pacifica minivan exists Mm -hmm. in hybrid form. It is the V6, but it also has a 360 volt lithium ion battery pack. It's right about 5,000 pounds. It's got to take even more, and the, the gross vehicle weight rating, if you can believe it, is 6,300. So that means it's full of people and gear, yeah, seven yeah, passengers, yeah. full of people and stuff and mm-hmm, gear, all mm-hmm. this stuff. Well, you'd think there would be. I don't know that I've seen them everywhere, to be honest, and that's not really what's selling. People want SUVs. Yeah, they don't yeah. really want minivans. Minivans are still selling, fine, mm-hmm, yeah. but then you go hybrid and you think, well, you know, with all the stuff Toyota and Honda offer as hybrids, I just think there's, you know, the buying public really wants more of a an SUV kind of feel and that kind mm-hmm. of feel from the driving experience. That's just kind of what's selling right now. To well, be honest. I also think that I think you're hitting on some good points. I also think that obviously the hybrid versions of everything is more expensive. So you'd yes, be adding cost to your minivan, getting it more into the price point of the really nice SUVs. And the SUV, let's be honest, in the in the mind of the average person, 
A person shopping a minivan isn't worried about uh, gas mileage, but the average person shopping an SUV is. There's a perception reality yeah. with an SUV of, True. yeah, but that's going to get terrible gas mileage. And the truth is, the current one might get the same gas mileage as the minivan you're shopping, but I don't think minivan shoppers worry about it. Yeah, because true. they just assume it's good enough, and I need a minivan, and I need the big doors, and whatever it gets for gas mileage. It's almost, it's almost. This is crazy. It's almost the muscle car buyer. You're buying a muscle car because you want a muscle car. Gas mileage, it'll it'll burn gas. I'm buying I'm buying a minivan because I need a minivan. I want the doors. Gas mileage is whatever. Did you just equate muscle car buyers to minivan owners? I made a connection there. It's a little odd. <laughs> I did actually just do that. Yes. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because unknown what Waymo is doing now, but as you guys know, I had a chance to work there for about a month, just very briefly yeah, yeah. doing some consulting work. And the reason Waymo chose the Pacifica Hybrid was because it was already outfitted with enough wiring and space for all the additional electrics oh. and sensors they were going to offer on the vehicle. So they specifically chose that rather than choosing a smaller car and having to rewire things mm-hmm. and add mm-hmm. a whole bunch more wiring and where does it all go mm-hmm. they can hide it easier in the size of a minivan to be able to do it interesting which okay. is and you know gets you know it's a hybrid so they theoretically get better gas mileage and all that stuff so that's why they chose those but again i don't know where waymo's going as a direction if they will continue mm-hmm. to build and remake their own cars or if they're just going to offer this as a service for other manufacturers gonna, i don't really know where they're going they're going to make point. waymo of them yeah, they are. <laughs> Either way, uh, yeah. whatever they do. There's going to be there's going to be way more information about that. Those jokes continue to move on. Yes. Just shuffling. Chris on Instagram asked an interesting question that is as close as I'm going to get right now to a car debate. He said he is looking at a follow me real closely here. He's looking at a 2007 Z51 package C6 Corvette. Good. It has 100,000 miles on it. 500 horsepower. Yeehaw. He currently drives a 2017, 10 years newer, a 2017 370Z base with 12,000 miles on it. Oh. He's looking because this Corvette is at a local used car dealer, and they are saying to him they're willing to do a straight-up trade. The vet for the Z car. And he's saying he's intrigued. Is this a good idea? Chris, interesting place you're at. Let me unpack this a couple of different ways. First off, I think... Going about this this way is probably the lowest hassle, but the least benefit, and here's why. The used car dealer is going to, by their nature, overprice the value of that Corvette and undervalue your 370Z. True. Yes. So I'm going to suspect that your Z car, two years old, 12,000 miles, a base one, is probably worth somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty-five grand. Okay? I'm going to bet that Corvette is maybe worth twenty twenty-two. Yeah, probably. Yeah. They're going to tell you that that Corvette is worth 22 to 25 and that your Z car is worth maybe 22. They're, my point is there's a delta in there where you've lost money if you want to do this yourself. Now, maybe you don't. I totally get the fact that you could drive in with one car and drive out with another. I get that. So that may make it win. But I think, follow me here, if your Z car is worth 25, let's say 25 to 28, because I looked them up. Some of the 2017 are, are that? yes, they are. I okay. looked them up. Now you've got a base car. It may not be worth as much, but 25 is solid for your car, okay? What if you sold it yourself? Now you've got 25 grand in your pocket, and now you go shop a C6 Corvette. You're going to get a better one with lower mileage than this 100,000-mile one sitting near you. I feel confident about that. I'll go you one further. You know what are 30? Many things. The Z06 C6 are at 30. 
They are. And they're much they are. better than the standard Corvette. My concern for you is... Oh, that's is, what I was thinking. I said 500 horsepower. That, I was yeah, thinking, Z06, thinking Z06, but it was the exactly. Z51 package, which is not 500 exactly. horsepower. Exactly. But yes. So what, I, what I'm concerned about is you're going from a car that is two years old with 12,000 miles to 12 years old with 100,000 miles. Mm. You're going to feel that difference in wear constantly. And it's not like the Corvette, the C6, or any generation was known for great interior materials to begin yeah. with. You're talking about a 100,000-mile Corvette. It's going to rattle. It's going to feel old. It just is. You're coming from a car that feels almost new. True, true. I'm concerned for this swap for you. I like the fact that you want to go for Corvette for new experience, V8 muscle. You want that. I love that. I think the smarter play, unless you just want simplicity, is to sell your Z car. And if you can, get yourself a C6 Z06 at 30. Yeah, I like that. Better. That is a car. That is a car yeah. that's special enough to make the swap. One thing you can never have enough of is car stuff, and that's why we love Haggerty Drivers Club. Starting at forty-five dollars a year, you'll get six issues of their award-winning Haggerty Drivers Club magazine, chock full of interesting reads and beautiful photos. And you'll get access to members-only live streams on topics like car values, automotive history, and do-it-yourself tutorials. Plus, membership comes with tons of automotive discounts, including a deal of the week, which is always an incredible deal and lasts only a couple of days. If you love cars half as much as we do, this is the club for you. Learn more at Haggerty.com slash Everyday Driver. Touching on the last podcast, when we kind of ranted a little bit, Petrolhead 80 says, we discussed the horrors associated with dealers, and yes, there can mm-hmm. be many, the biggest being the idiotic dealer markups, yes. which we disagree with. Do we think manufacturers should assert more control over their dealers, or should dealers continue to be independently managed? Moreover, how can the dealer experience even be improved in the eyes of the customer? This is almost a topic Tuesday, to be mm-hmm. honest. Yeah, it is, yeah. But on improving dealer experience, we've all heard the stories and met people and talked to people about when somebody is investigating getting a job at a dealer, they're enticed with money, and that's it. Mm-hmm. You're going to mm-hmm. sell so many of these cars. You don't even have to know anything about cars. You're just going to sell cars. <laughs> many of them And don't. then the rest of us enthusiasts walk into the dealer and discover, indeed, that is true. You know nothing, and you've been working here for about three weeks, and you came from retail. I've, I've and, had that car salesman before, that exact oh, person I've, I've had, had before. I've had that saleswoman. Yeah. I've had that. Yeah. yeah. And so we've experienced this, and they know nothing, and they're sort of like, well, I can check for you, which is not what we want to hear. You mm-hmm. ask a question, I don't know. I can check. That is not how to do it. And so – I almost feel like there needs to be a a licensing in a way. Hmm. Okay. You have to have a certain level of knowledge about cars just to be eligible to work here. It should be part of hmm. Hmm. the entire interview process. But of course that may go against any, you know, <laughs> federal hiring practices sure. because everybody should have, you know, equal opportunity, which I'm all for. Oh, but you could do on-the-job training that could be more than just on-the-job training for how to sell somebody. Here we go. on-the-job training for how to know the product. It could be, all right, you know nothing about cars, and we think you're the perfect person. Let me give an example. Tesla is known to hire people who are dog walkers. Mm. They know nothing about tech, but boy, do they know logistics. They can be trained on the job okay. for right. the thing All that right. needs to be done because they know logistics. They hmm. they managed, you know, fifty accounts of all these random dogs of all different sizes and and eating habits and okay. you know, right. places right. around the yeah, yeah. you know the city and all that <laughs> stuff. I've actually heard they hire 
different industries into what they need the job to do mm-hmm. based not on your experience having, you know, in tech, but Skill based set. on they know you can do the job. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's say dealers, you know, just hire. All right. You know nothing about cars. No problem. Are you willing to be trained? Okay. Okay. Somebody okay. has to be willing to be trained. <laughs> Ideally. Right. I mean, they can't just go and like, well, I don't know. It's just I'll a figure thing. it out. I'll be fine. Here's yeah. the price because mm-hmm. that's so frustrating. And I think it hinders sales, to be honest. If, you know, people come in and they know they're, you know, hey, I'm in training, but I'm learning about this particular car and mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. take advantage because it seems like people low on the totem pole at dealerships don't get sent to the cool events from manufacturers. They don't get sent sure. on. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it, it could be considered a junket. You know, all the top salespeople get sent on the new Audi R8. Mm-hmm. launch and all mm-hmm. this stuff. So we know we've tracked it and all this stuff. That's great. But how about the Chevy pickups? Have you had it off-road? Have you have you driven a Chevy pickup first? Mm-hmm. Have you yeah, even yeah, driven yeah. one? Yeah, yeah. Now you can sell it to me. Now let's talk about options, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So if they're willing to be more educated, and that means dealers have to be willing to educate their people. I know there are dealers who do, Absolutely, and there are yeah. wide ranges of dealerships as far as service and levels of commitment. I know that already exists, but... Maybe there's an industry standard that dealerships need to meet to get all their employees up to a an even bar of training. You you would think that that would be encouraged to know your competition and, and your your product and your competition. But we were actually at a dealer, and I won't name names. We were at a dealer a while ago, and we brought a competitive product onto the dealer lot to pick up a different car. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And one of the salespeople started asking me about the competitor's product, and I said, "You're welcome to get in it." And they said to me. I don't think I want to be seen doing that. And I thought, I, I think you should be applauded for doing that. But they didn't because they were very concerned about if they climbed in the competitor's product while sitting on their lot. And I was like, I think you should be all over the competitor's product. And I think the dealership should encourage that. Absolutely. It was the same story I heard about Steve Ballmer when he ran Microsoft, when okay. he was CEO of Microsoft. Okay. And Microsoft came out with that Zune thing. Uh, that thing, yes. To compete against iPods. I'm aware, yes. He wouldn't let his kids own any Apple products whatsoever. Okay. They had to, you know, drink the Kool-Aid. They had to, yeah, what is this thing? All my friends have iPods and iPads and phones <laughs> and everything else. Yeah. But no, they were stuck with that. They shouldn't be embracing it and learning from it. Ideally, yeah. I mean, look, we're, we're creating best case scenario. I know there's always variables in here, and I'm not saying that all dealers are one way. But I no, think cross no. cross education. But you and I have talked before about if you had wound up as a designer for a specific mark, you couldn't do this show. Absolutely. You, you and I are able to be on non-biased, which is a nice gift for sure. Well, Petrolhead, as far as your question about dealerships managing the uh, or, or OEMs managing the dealerships themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, no, I don't think they should because OEMs are in the business of building cars and that's it. Mm -hmm. They're not in the business of running how the dealership should be managed and how their Mm -hmm. cars should be sold. That's not what they do. They need experts who do that. And in many cases, there are dealerships and dealership networks who know how to do that. Marketing and advertising and fleet inventory and all that kind of stuff. And so I think it's okay where we're at right now. Mm. There just needs to be a level of commitment to their employees. And you can tell what employees are better than others. You yeah. walk in and you yeah. start asking questions. You can immediately tell if they just want to sell you the card and you're like, okay, I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Or do you want to work with me? And you know something and you know, I genuinely want your business. And they're not even thinking about that car. They're thinking about the third or fourth car out yeah, here that yeah. you might buy from them. 
we've we've had good dealer experiences just like we've had bad dealer experiences. But you know what? I have to say that the direct-to-consumer con- model that exists, which was the same reason that movie theaters aren't owned by film studios, is, mm-hmm. the, is the reason that car dealers are not owned by the manufacturers. There's right. a whole antitrust thing going on there. Right. And Tesla has had trouble selling in some markets because of dealers standing up and going, this isn't fair because Tesla is going direct to consumer. I don't have a problem with direct to consumer in this, this scenario. No. I think I'd be fine with it. But it no. would change this, the framework of this quite a bit. Very interesting. Yeah. I think it just makes dealerships work a little bit harder and do a little mm. bit better job. If they really want your business, I don't mind being sold of mm. any kind of product. Sure, sure. When I'm in Best Buy and I ask a question about electronics, I don't want the employee to turn the box over and read me the answer <laughs> from the back of the box, a thing that I could have just done myself. <laughs> and may already have done. Yeah, I, that's not what I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm looking for your expertise. I'm buying you. I'm not buying the product. Interesting. I'm okay. buying right. you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the people that are trained – they make you feel comfortable about your purchase. That's when you buy. That's interesting. That's good stuff. The Dad Ranch is asking on Facebook. He said he's just getting into mountain biking, and he's restoring an old bike that he has, an old specialized rock hopper, and he's th- finding it kind of satisfying. So kind of like cool. working on an old car. He's working on an old bike, and he's going, this is really cool. So he's building out an old bike. And so he's asking tips that we've learned in mountain biking or things he should consider. I'm going to give you two. That uh, he's asking, are you asking about mistakes at large? I don't know if you're talking about riding mistakes. I don't know what, but I'm going to, thinking about you building that old bike makes me think of two things. Retrofit it for disc brakes if it doesn't have them. Oh, yeah. They That's a good They are revolutionary. One. They are so much better, especially if you mountain bike very much. They are so much better than the old brakes that press on the rim. You don't, you don't want those. You want to have disc brakes to so do that. And also, if you're going to do a lot of descending, climbing and descending, put in a dropper post. The dropper post is a little flick button on your handlebars that drops your seat post as those it'll go and gets it out of your way, which allows your upper body and you stand on the pedals. You've got a lot more movement, a lot more agility when you descend. I, I, those are the two things from modern mountain bikes that I think should be retrofitted to all old ones. So hopefully that helps. Clayton Troxel asks if louvers are making a comeback. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm in disagreement. He's been seeing cheese graters on the back of newer American classics like Mustangs. He's liked them on old Datsuns and would put them on his CRX if he could find them. What cars from this decade would you want to see them on, if any? I will answer that question with the Celine S7. Mm-hmm. Remember this car? Oh, yeah. It has 94 openings on it. 94 <laughs> Holes. Brief starring moment in Bruce Almighty. Yes, yes, there it is. There's a lot of strakes in that car. I have seen them for sale in my car browsing. I see them like, oh, a Selena 7. It made it look far more dated than the shape suggests. You're right. And it doesn't look good. It has not held up in my eyes. It's louvers all over the... It's it's the hot rotted effect all over a supercar, which in my mind kind of killed it from the beginning, stylistically speaking, because... It's they're they're at odds with each other. A beautiful, clean shape. Let's leave it alone. Yeah, fair point. Clean is hard fair to point. do. Yeah, yeah. The cleanest shapes are the Ferraris and Maseratis and Astons and Jaguars of the sixties. Yeah. They had nothing on them. Maybe an <laughs> opening right. or two. Yeah, you're right. You're right. And I was yeah. like, oh, the my my eye goes right to that spot. And that's a what is that opening? Oh, it does something functional. It's a vent <laughs> or an exhaust outlet or something. But the rest of it is just clean paint. Beautiful. Yeah, I, long. I agree. Much better. But much 94 better. openings. No. There's a guy locally that has a uh, matte black, so already kind of sacrilege, right? But a matte black Testarossa okay. that he's taken the side strakes off of and given it yes. modern wheels. And I have to say, 
it's kind of awesome. I know you're not much of a fan like I am, but I think <sighs> it has. I think it has modernized, not like current, but I think it has modernized that design quite a bit. Take the strikes out. Who knew? Is that a Brand new 2020 car? No, it, it's amazing how much more recent it makes that car. It does. I'm wondering with the louvers, he's talking about just the back window louvers. Could be. And Could be. and those were on all kinds of things in the 80s, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, and, and the problem is, of course, the, the thinking is you can't, don't get the glare in the back window because you have the louvers, but they're hard to see out of. Genuinely, they are. They're, they're difficult they are. to see out of, and it makes your car a cave. So that's always my question about it. Bradley, 1983 on Instagram, has a question about cost of entry. I'm going to re- rename this because I mentioned it before. I talked about it as the price of fun. He says he's driven a Ferrari 430, the Nissan GTR, a 996-911, and they were all fun at completely different price points. And you're absolutely right. He said, is one car at double the price, double the fun of a car? I mean, if, if you find a car that, okay, it costs 50 grand, but here's another one, it's 100 grand. Is 100 grand we're going to be twice as fun? No, it's not. No, it's it the is the ongoing not. question. The price of fun is not connected to the scale of the price of cars. And I talk about this all the time with the 86 and the Miata, which are crazy cheap now used. The Fiesta ST is another one. These cars are cheap. You can get into cars five, six, ten times more expensive than what you bought your used one of those for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and find them not as fun. Now they're going to have some other thing about them. But honestly, I mean, I th- this is the struggle that I have, as weird as it sounds, with owning my Lotus, is I get, honestly, I get two houses away from my driveway every time I drive that car, and I almost always say aloud, I love this car. That's so great. And it it's so simple, and it's so dated, and it's so raw, and there are so many things it doesn't do, and I still love it. So if I had a car, I'm just dreaming now. If I had a car that was 300 grand, because that car's worth 30, mm-hmm. would I like it as much? Would I like it that much more? I doubt I'd like it that much more. I probably, depending on what I bought, would like it as much. But yeah, it's yeah. this is where I know I anthropomorphize maybe too much. But this is where cars are like people. There is a personality difference. Which of your kids do you like the most? You know what I mean? <laughs> it's okay. Hard. You know which of which of yeah. your best friend is absolutely the best person? Are they really? So there, there's a difference. Doesn't equate to better or worse, and price certainly doesn't. So I think you have to find this is back to where we started as a show. You have to find the car that speaks to you, and why does it speak to you? And if that car happens to be ten ten times more expensive than the last car you bought, but it speaks to you that much, now it's worth it. There's a question here from J.R. Roloff that we didn't get to last podcast, but he lives in Bend, Oregon, and wants to get into backcountry exploration. Should he buy, A, a used four-wheel drive, or B, an Aronka Champ that he's had his eye on? Now, this mm. Champ is an airplane, actually. Okay. It's about the size of a Piper Cub. It's fixed okay. gear, single right. engine, sure. high wing, tandem seating. Okay. It's I'm tiny. With, with, yeah, yeah. Super Little light. Guys. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, JR, in my my dad had a house in Alaska for 15 years. And in my visits up there, he was in the aviation insurance industry and you know, we'd go I'd go with him on some calls and visit people that lived in a shack but they had a $300,000 airplane and that was their baby, but that was also a workhorse. It was a tool mm-hmm. to get around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it just seemed like the people that had the most fun had planes on floats because they would take off and they would just Start looking around and pick a random lake in the middle of nowhere. Wow. That probably 
nobody has ever been to, <laughs> which makes it the ultimate SUV. Interesting point. Yeah. I mean, they put the Tundra tires on it and the be- big balloon beach tires, and they put yeah, the yeah. land on the beach. Yeah. You know, parallel to the water, to wow, the waves, that's that's and so just cool. cruise right up on the beach. But it just, it never ceased to amaze me the thought about flying out over Alaska. And you look down, and you think, that area right there could possibly have never been trampled on by humans. Mm-hmm. We've flown over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that area, that seems really wooded and hard to get to. And that particular, that lake might never have seen a human being fish drop a line in that water. Wow, wow, wow. It's just that sort of thinking. So in that sense, four-wheel drives seem not as cool. Do they not? <laughs> Quaint. They seem like, <laughs> oh, that's cute. You have a four-by-four. So yeah, does, four I don't know, everybody. That's funny. Did you know they do that with 911s now? Yeah, exactly. I take your point. That's funny. I like that. But I guess I lean towards the airplane. Just if you can, I mean, I know... I've heard the pilot jokes. I know about the hundred dollar hamburger. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, just experience that. I know there's a different level of safety and training and that kind of thing. But if if you got, I mean, they're cheap enough where I think you could probably swing for one and then, you know, see what kind of adventures you have. Love it. Chris on Facebook is asking a a fighting words question. When he was looking to buy his FRS, he also was looking at RX eights (laughs) and there's been rumors off and on for a while now that there's going to be an RX-9, that Mazda is going to come out with a sports car above the Miata. It'll be called the RX-9. It'll have the rotary in it. And you and I have mentioned before that we think it'd be awesome without the rotary. Mm-hmm. And he's mm-hmm. saying, what are we talking about? Wouldn't they get huge backlash to make an RX-9 and make it not a rotary? Isn't there a huge fan base, et cetera? First off, you're right. They couldn't call it the RX-9 because it wouldn't have a rotary in it. They have to call it something else. But the point I'm making here is that, Chris, I would love to see Mazda, who's doing a lot of really good stuff, but they aren't doing the Mazda Speed stuff anymore. I would love for them for them to make a sports car, more GT style, above the Miata. Mm. And that's where mm-hmm. I see the RX-9 idea going. It can't could, be, it's got to do that Mazda thing where it feels luxurious and amazing, mm-hmm. but the price isn't very high. Agreed. But what if it was 45 to 50? Yeah. Maybe 55. Like, like, like competing with the Supra. I was going to say, you're competing in Superland. Now. Yes, which would be a perfect place for it to be. The, the thing about the rotary, let me step here for a second, and I'll probably get angry letters and pitchforks thrown at me. But the thing about the rotary is the rotary is Mazda's ongoing science project. And it should kind of be left to be that. I know <laughs> I should seen, stick a fork in it. I've I've seen the models. I know why it's awesome. I've driven the cars. I understand the rev out. The engines are interesting, but they're never quite good enough in gas mileage and reliability to be put in a mass market car. So now you take a car. Theoretically, now I realize you take a car that Mazda is making to compete with the Z car and the Supra and that kind of stuff, but you give it, you hobble it instantly. Because you give it an engine that a lot of people are going to go, I don't, I don't know, right away. Yes, the guys that like rotaries are going to buy it because they like the rotaries. I get that. But that is a really – you're talking about niche already with sports cars. Now you make it more niche by making a niche little science project of an engine. They're cool when they run. They're very cool when they run. They are problematic engines. What if that RX-9 doesn't become an R at all? It's the MX-9. I'm just – making it up now, mm-hmm. and they put in their turbo two-and-a-half-liter engine, mm, yeah, getting 300 horsepower, Ooh. which is an engine that has been a workhorse in all of their stuff and does well. And the car weighs, I'm guessing here, 3,200 pounds. It's a two-plus-two. 
that would sell a lot more than that same car with a rotary. That's my point. Do I need to start sketching then? Please do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> There's a question from Mark Flurry who asks if we've considered starting a private page for fans to sell and trade cars amongst ourselves. Like, like cars and bids? Like cars and bids, like well, it's it's sort of like the personalized bring a trailer, I suppose. Yeah, it would be it would be our we we just call it pink slips, pink slips. Tell you, see, I like there, we've that. Done it. that and scene. Thank you for listening. Well, Mark finds himself wishing he belonged to a page of enthusiasts where he might list his girl. He says is eighty six. If he does post it and avoid the typical car selling and buying experience. I can see that. And he thought, that. you know, spot the mini and the large sedans are going to fans. Mm-hmm. Hope you want a Maserati with the turn signal, the right turn signal that blinks the interior lights along with the cadence. That They had to pay extra for that. That I was did. a feature, especially in the Neiman Marcus edition. Yeah. <laughs> they thought of everything. They did. And he says, uh, you know, what, a, what about it? Well, Mark, first of all, he's considering selling his 2786, 2017 86. Mm-hmm. So if you're mm-hmm. interested in Mark's car, drop us a Hello, line. Pass yeah. along mm-hmm. to Mark. Or he could probably be found right on Facebook. And, uh, yeah, he'd probably get a great car there. But I think it's actually a pretty good idea, to be honest. You know, what we could do for the fans of the show who are patron members, everybody who's on Patreon, that could become a part of the Discord group if you are selling that could become you a, could have a sales you know, page on there i could see that yeah. you know just hey it's yeah. just privately owned it's just because i know it's fans of the show that could be the toe in the pool way of starting yeah because the last thing you and i have is time and infrastructure to build something like that but yeah that, I take that's the other part of the equation mark is the infrastructure to build that out and i think it is cool i i do i, I am intrigued by cars and bids i'm intrigued by where that's going and mm-hmm. you know just the the fans and just the community. It's it really is about the community and just sure, yeah, knowing yeah. that all right, we're all on pretty much the same page here as enthusiasts and we all keep it at a you know particular level and it's been griosed and cover crafted <laughs> and insured with Haggerty and you know what I mean? So it's all <laughs> Rented on Drive Share. I have a big yeah. reference here, yeah. And like and, and, and briefly briefly posted on Auto Tempest. We've 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 covered them all. Yes, yes we had. Yes. It's interesting. Benji asked a question on Instagram that almost feels like a topic Tuesday to me, but I'm going to see if I can cover this quickly. He's asking about phases of being a car enthusiast. Oh yes, I did think this could be from a great topic. Tuesday. No cars or having more to more cool cars and more miles and more experience. What happens? And I, this is the only part of this I'm going to ask answer because I feel like we could talk about stages. We kind of have before, but I feel like we could talk about stages. But what are the factors that kill a future car enthusiast before it starts? And I'll tell you what I think it is, Benji. Okay. I actually think it's you got a driver's license, not because you really wanted a driver's license, or maybe you kind of did, but you the main reason you got it is because you now need to commute yourself to school or work or whatever. And now what you do in your car is sit and commute across a metropolitan area in traffic. Because what happens there, if you think about it in those terms, you went out and got licensed to perform a chore. Okay. And that's going to kill potential love of cars almost instantly because why do I have this hassle? And this is honestly, look, I'm going to go toward a cliche and then I'm going to bring it back. There was a discussion a lot in the last 10, 15 years about millennials don't want to drive, which has been kind of debunked since. Okay. But one of the major supports of that argument was the fact that the millennial generation didn't have access to the money to buy a car or any place interesting to drive it. And the minute they had a car, it was more expense, more hassle, and all they did was sit in traffic in it. 
So they were interested in things like Turo and public transit because why have the hassle? Sure. If you don't have a car that allows you to not commute or if you don't have a car experience that allows you to not commute, I don't think you can ever discover the wonder and the fun and the release and the escape that cars offer. In the same way that if you live in a big metropolitan area and you've never been to the mountains, been on a big hike, seen snow, you don't have perspective of we should go outside. You you don't think about we should should hang out outside in the concrete and the sun. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? No. (laughs) But the minute you – I mean this is the genius of Central Park in New York. Sure. It it can get that feel in one of the biggest cities in the world. True. True. But it's the same kind of thing. If you've just experienced – all of the difficulty of a downtown concreted area, you don't long for the outside if you haven't experienced it. If you only commuted, you don't know the joy of a back road. Ryan Wilson says, what cars have surprised you by how small their interior is given the exterior size or class size? Okay. I can tell you, Genesis G70. I was shocked at how small the back seats are. Mm-hmm. They should be far bigger than they are in both headroom and legroom for mm-hmm. you and I. Six foot three. I'll give you one. Hummer H1 and Hummer H2. Okay, well, sure, but that's just because the running gear. But but the point I'm making, though, is those are enormous. And then you crack the door and go, that's all the space I have? Chevy Tahoes have more space than the Yes, H2. they do. Yes, they do. It's crazy. Indeed. And uh, let's see, last question here from Combat Conductor. Have we ever considered making a standard template for debates so you, we always have a minimum amount of info? We've thought about it, but I'm, I almost think it'd be restrictive, and I think it would discourage people from sharing more of their story because mm-hmm. I do like it when people kind of go off a little bit. Not too yeah. much. Yeah. You know. Please. Paragraphs <laughs> and try to keep it under a 1,000 words, folks. Exactly. We do have other things to do. Yes. But, but we do love getting it. You're right. The detailed ones are interesting the a lot stories, of stories. And you're right. You go yes. in and then you, th- you write something and think, oh, well, this could be a pertinent detail. Of course – you know, location on the planet, what kind of weather you deal with, the price range you're looking for. Budget, yes. You know, what's, who's in your family? You know, mm-hmm. what do you have to use it for? And what usage do you want to get out of this kind of car? Those are the basics, of course. But then I don't want to discourage people or put limits yeah, on yeah. them just filling out a form because then it's going to be like, well, tell me the cool thing about the, you know, oh, you're a Ford person. Tell me, totally, yeah. you know, that sort of thing. The thing, I mean, we could leave like a big open, tell us about yourself, about the free form nature of how we do it now, while sometimes it makes it a little harder on us. Honestly, on the other end of the spectrum, it is what leads this podcast to talking about everything else on the planet beyond cars, mm-hmm. because that person is t- telling about something and that pings off of one of our two crazy brains. And now we're off in the weeds and we eventually wrench it back to cars. That comes out of these, if you will, kind of non-standard emails. Yeah, agreed. Guys, thank you so much for all your questions. You have inundated us, it's but we've asked. We really, really like it. So it's thank very you. cool. And keep writing all your car debates to us. And yeah, tell us tell us your stories. Mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. because that's what makes interesting and unique. And the cool thing about car debates is even if you've been thinking for a while, you can, you can put it off. You can say, mm-hmm. all right, I'm getting there. But there's car number two or car number three. The podcast has been going strong <laughs> and long enough yep. that – People are now writing us saying, hey, guys, on your recommendation, I bought this car. I've had it three years. I've cycled through. I'm yeah, ready you're for right. something next. You're right. You're so right. That is okay, too. So we want to get to as many newcomers as we possibly can, but we love all your stories. So thank you so much. Looking forward to next time. Cheers, everyone.